Amen. Thank you, Derek. Pam, wonderful singing this evening. 1 Thessalonians chapter number 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter number 4. As we might already know, the word rapture is actually not found in the Bible. And yet it is a common theme in our view of eschatology. It is an important topic. It is the next event on God's prophetic timetable. But in 1 Thessalonians chapter number 4, in verse 17, we see the phrase caught up, and that is where we get uh, the word rapture from. And so the Greek word, harpazo, is translated caught up, and it literally means to seize. And so we use the English word rapture, which is the seizing or the conveying of someone from one place to another. And that's where we get the word rapture. So we will talk about that in length tonight. And if we don't finish this evening, then we'll come back, Lord willing, uh, next Sunday night and finish. But just for a quick review, last uh, time we met on Sunday evening, last Sunday evening, we looked at what is prophecy. And we spent some time already on uh, these points, even in a previous message, back before Dr. Hartman was here. And we talked about prophecy being foretelling, and that gift has, has, has ceased in its foretelling function, in its receiving of direct divine revelation. But there is still the gift of prophecy in the sense of foretelling, preaching and teaching the proclamation of already revealed divine truth. And so we've spent quite a bit of time already looking at that. I won't go back through all of those points again. The purpose of prophecy, once again, is not to divide the church, not to uh, be an area that we can try to outsmart the other people in the church and start our own YouTube channel and have our own conferences that we can sell our tickets and make ourselves famous because we have the inside scoop on God's prophetic events, as some people try to make it out to be. Again, I'm not saying that there aren't some good uh, places of good sources of information out there, but as I've said before, don't take your don't get your theology and your eschatology from the Left Behind series, the books or the movies. And uh, not that we can't attend a good event that talks about uh, biblical eschatology, but the purpose of prophecy is not for someone like some investigative journalist to have the headline story, the inside information that nobody else has seen in the last 2,000 years. And they, they have it figured out. As you know, there have been those charismatic preachers who have supposedly known when Jesus is going to come again, and they even have been foolish enough to throw a date out there, and some of them are now dead, and Jesus has not come again. But they thought they had it all down, and they had figured it all out, and they knew when Jesus was going to return and obviously uh, he has not, and they are wrong. And we know in the Old Testament, if a prophet was wrong in his prophecy that he said came from God, 
that the punishment for a false prophet was death, capital punishment, stoning. And uh, some of those false prophets have uh, deserved to be stoned for their false teaching, not just in the area of trying to predict when Christ will return, but often they are doctrinally wrong in other areas as well. But the purpose of prophecy is a testimony of God's sovereign control. It gives believers confidence to live by faith. It gives believers hope for the future, and it calls sinners to repentance. It also calls believers to holiness, and we've looked at those, so I'm kind of rushing through this. But principles for interpreting prophecy. I, I may uh, eventually uh, develop a, a sermon or a lesson on biblical hermeneutics, but there are some important hermeneutical principles that are often broken or violated when interpreting biblical prophecy. But we need to remember there is a lot of symbolic language in prophecy, and we need to be careful to interpret it properly, figuratively when it calls for a figurative interpretation. But if the plain sense makes sense, seek no other sense. We interpret the Bible literally, understanding there is symbolic language, there are metaphors, there are similes, there are those different grammatical terms. We've looked at, talked about some of these. We talked about prophetic passages being often written with a sense of imminence, and a prophetic passage often combines more than one prediction in a single passage or in a single verse even. And then we need to remember to interpret Scripture by Scripture. There are many different prophetic passages. Just like we looked at this morning, Psalm 118, in the Messianic Psalm, and Zechariah 9, two different books with prophetic messages. And we have to be careful that we're not cherry-picking Scripture and failing to interpret Scripture by Scripture. In Matthew 24 and 25, I often refer to that, those two chapters, because people do all kinds of things with Matthew 24 and 25 when we can understand them in the light of the book of Revelation and the different judgments, and it makes a lot more sense. But I have heard preachers use Matthew 24 and 25 to talk about the rapture, when Matthew 24 and 25 is talking about events that take place during the tribulation and before the second coming before the Millennial Kingdom. We also have to remember context, grammatical, going even back into the Hebrew or the Aramaic, into the Greek, and again, understanding that there were terms that were not available then, like atomic and nuclear and tanks and F-16s, and some of those terms, they were not available to John or to the prophets, and yet they used language of their day that we have to be able to understand in the grammatical context and also in the historical context. And then we spent some time looking at the book of Daniel, which is often uh, misunderstood and misinterpreted. So we spent some time looking at Daniel's 70 weeks and understanding the timetable of prophetic events. We really have to understand the outline. We have to understand the historical context. We really have to get this timeline right, or we will get things all mixed up. So we have to understand that one prophetic week is seven years of time, literally 77s, 70 weeks, 77. So one prophetic week is seven years of time. 
Daniel's 70 weeks begins with the decree from Artaxerxes of Persia to rebuild Jerusalem, 445 B.C., Nehemiah 2, to the completion of the walls, streets, and walls of Jerusalem in 396 B.C. That marked the end of the first seven weeks. And that was Daniel 9 and verse 25. So we have those 49 years, those seven weeks. Okay, and then we have 62 weeks, 62 prophetic weeks, 62 portions of seven years, so 434 years, if we do the math, span the period of time between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the life of Christ up to the triumphal entry and Christ's crucifixion. Of course, the triumphal entry, which we talked about this morning, and in the same week as the crucifixion, so we're putting them in that same week of time, and that is the completion of those 434 years and the Messiah cut off in Daniel 9 and verse 26. I believe it is clearly referring to Christ's death on the cross. So then, 70th week is still future. That is the seven-year tribulation. This church age was not revealed to Daniel it was a mystery to him. He saw mountain peaks of the Messiah coming, and the first coming, and the Messiah, Messiah's second coming, Christ's first coming and second coming. He saw two mountain peaks. He did not understand the valley in between the church age, and that's often the case with Old Testament prophets. So then we spend some time looking at Nebuchadnezzar's dream that Daniel interpreted, interpreted in Daniel 2. And we won't spend a lot of time here, but eventually seeing the stone cut without hands being God's kingdom, the eternal kingdom of God that would break every other kingdom. And there have been other kingdoms that have been tried. These are specifically the kingdoms uh, referenced in uh, the, the Old and the New Testaments, the Roman Empire being the ruling empire during the time of Christ. New Testament, but there have been other attempts at empires. The British Empire, the Third Reich, which was predicted to last 100 years, and it lasted 30 at the most, maybe. There have been all kinds of attempts at empires. And we look at history, man has a thirst for power. Man is bloodthirsty for power. We're experiencing that right now here in America. As our democratic, constitutional democratic republic breaks down, we see a bloodthirsty desire for power. It happens in small groups of boys and girls in schools. It happens among adults. It happens among athletes. It happens among uh, musicians. It happens in so many different areas. Man is selfish by nature, obviously a sinner by nature, and he desires to dominate, he desires to have power, he desires to have control. So we've seen attempts all throughout history, and they have all failed. Man's kingdoms always fail. And there are pastors who come along and try to build little kingdoms unto themselves. And they get a very big ego and they often become very authoritarian and dictatorial and very selfish. 
even as they pastor a church, and some of them have mega churches. Some of them have huge ministries. And many of them have been disgraced because of their thinking that because they have power and influence, that, that exempts them from the laws of God. And they abuse their authority. They take advantage of people. They exploit the sheep. And many of them have been disgraced and fallen. Man desires power. And yet every single time that man gets power, it seems to corrupt him because of his sin. At a history teacher, that would say almost every history class, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So then we see Daniel's vision in Daniel 7, the Babylonian Empire being lion-like, the Medo-Persian Empire being bear-like, Greek Empire under Alexander the Great, leopard-like in his kingdom. He was 33 years old. Alexander the Great had no other countries to conquer that he knew of. And he was so depressed, he committed suicide, and his kingdom was divided into four parts. And even Daniel refers to that. The Roman Empire was beast-like. The Ten Horns is the revived Roman Empire. That is the one world government. There are ten countries. People have sometimes referred to as the European Union, being a predecessor to the ten-nation revived Roman Empire. And out of those ten comes three powerful countries, and out of those three comes one, the Horn that's the Antichrist. And then, of course, we know the Ancient of Days, the Everlasting Kingdom, overcomes all of those. There's Daniel's image, each of the empires, some historical dates, and then Daniel's prophecies, and then we come to Daniel's 70 weeks. Now, you'll see that I added the rapture of the church, and I have an arrow pointing there to after the church age and before the start of the tribulation. I am a pre-trib, pre-millennial pastor. We are a pre-trib, pre-millennial church. Now again, that's not to be a eschatological two-by-four to whack each other upside the head, but I believe that the Bible, best interpreted, teaches a pre-tribulational rapture and a pre-millennial return of Christ for a literal 1,000-year reign on the earth. There are, we'll talk about the, the views of the millennium in another sermon. There's the all-millennials who don't believe that there is a literal millennium. Then there are the post-millennial who believe that there is a 1,000-year uh, reign, but the church basically ushers that in, and then Christ comes after that. We'll get to that some other time. There are views of the tribulation. There are some who are pre-trib. And then there are people who are mid-trib, sometimes referred to as pre-wrath. And then there are some who are post-trib. Okay, And I sometimes joke with the mid-tribbers and the post-tribbers that we're all going to go up as pre-trib, and I'm going to be standing there in heaven. I'm going to be saying in the, the marriage supper of the Lamb, see, I told you so. You know, I, I joke around, just joke around. Okay. Um, there won't be that kind of envy and jealousy going on in, in heaven. But uh, I do joke around sometimes with, with post-tribbers or mid-tribbers, um, but I don't want to sound egotistical and, and arrogant in saying that. But I believe the best interpretation of Scripture and the passages, as we'll see, uh, teaches a pre-tribulational view of the rapture. So, 
Where do we get the word rapture? I mentioned at the very beginning, we get that from 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 17. The Greek word harpazo, translated caught up, literally means to seize, the act of conveying a person from one place to another. We have the English word rapture to describe this event, to, to interpret or to translate, to describe this phrase caught up, the word Greek word harpazo. I don't know if any of you have seen this painting. Uh, I had a friend, good friend, uh, from our former ministry. His mom and dad had this painting up in their house, and uh, I was mesmerized by it as a kid growing up. Every time I visit my friend's house, I would see this painting. And uh, you can buy it on eBay for $3.99 as a postcard, just in case you would want to know. But it does show an artist's rendition of the rapture. And it is uh, showing cars crashing, planes going into skyscrapers. And uh, there is an inaccuracy, if we can... I can be a little bit critical here. The dead in Christ rise first. And so it appears in this picture that the dead in Christ are going up the same time as those who are alive in Christ. And I believe the dead in Christ rise first. Anyway, we won't get too overly critical. But it is an interesting artist rendition, and maybe you've seen this uh, before. And if, if any of you are curious, I never knew this until I was looking this up. I saw this painting for years at my friend's house. This is actually. Dallas, Texas. So Jesus Christ apparently is going to appear over the skies of Dallas, Texas. Just kidding. <laughs> but that's what I've been told, or that's what it says on eBay, is this is a, a, paint, a painting of, of Dallas, Texas from, I don't know, back in the 80s, I'm guessing. Not sure when it was painted. All right, so for the pre-tribulational view of the rapture, we have to go back to the Old Testament and see an Old Testament picture of the rapture, Okay. I don't want to be overly dogmatic here, but I do think that Leviticus 23, verses 24 and 25 do seem to indicate a feast that represents what we refer to as the rapture of the church. Okay, so Leviticus, going all the way back to the Pentateuch, in verses 24 and 25 of Leviticus 23. Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, in the first day of the month, shall ye have a Sabbath, a memorial of blowing of trumpets and holy convocation. Ye shall do no servile work therein, but ye shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. This blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation, seems to be an Old Testament picture or representation of the rapture or there will be the blowing of the trumpet. So the Feast of Trumpets seems to be an Old Testament picture or representation of the rapture. Numbers 29 in verse number 1 refers to the Feast of Trumpets as a day of blowing the trumpets. So as we learn about the Feast of Trumpets, there were 29 days of blowing a ram's horn, stopping on the last day of the preceding month, and so there were 29 days that this ram's horn is blown. And then on the first day of the next month, the first day of the seventh month, which in the Jewish calendar is Tisri, T-I-S-R-I, 
There were to be three distinct series of 30 blasts each, followed by 10 blasts from the trumpet, ending with one last long blast called the great blowing. A lot of trumpet sounds during the Feast of Trumpets, and there were reasons for the trumpet. And we understand that the sound of the trumpet was used for gathering people, okay? Rosh Hashanah is the modern-day Jewish holiday. It was, I believe, in late September, early October this year. In Rosh Hashanah, there are some who believe that the rapture will take place around the time of the Jewish feast of Rosh Hashanah, the holiday Rosh Hashanah, Feast of Trumpets. We cannot be, again, dogmatic about that, but there are some who believe that the rapture of the church will take place at the Jewish Feast of Trumpets, Rosh Hashanah. And again, we don't know that for sure. But this Old Testament feast, this Jewish holiday, does have a lot of similarities to the New Testament teaching concerning the rapture of the church. Trumpets, trumpets were used in the Old Testament for announcements and for gathering people. Now, I often think of Camp Assurance. Some of you have been to Camp Assurance, and I don't know if this is still the case, but do they still ring the bell for mealtimes at Camp Assurance? And I still uh, remember the bell ringing, and it was mealtime in my experiences at Camp Assurance. We have ringing of bells. We have alarms. We have different sounds that we have in our culture that indicate it's time for dinner, time for a meal, or it's time for us to go to class, or I know in some cases it's leave class, or to get ready for the next class. Okay, we're used to alarms and bells and that kind of thing. And in the Old Testament, the trumpet was a sound that said it's time to come together, to gather together. And that seems to indicate something similar to the rapture, where the sound of the trumpet and there's a gathering of God's people. Okay, I think we can picture in our mind's eye the imagery uh, that seems to be presented in the Feast of Trumpets. So then we'll get into some specific reasons why we believe in a pre-tribulational view of the rapture. First of all, we have to consider the judgmental nature of the tribulation. The seal judgments, the vile judgments, the bull judgments, there are judgments one after another. And then there's uh, the, the Great Tribulation, which uh, is probably where 14 of those judgments are poured out. And there's some argument as to how many judgments take place before the abomination of desolation. We know the Great Tribulation is after the breaking of the covenant by the Antichrist, who desecrates the temple, and there's a persecution of the Jews like we've never seen before. I think even the Holocaust probably would pale in comparison to what will happen in the Great Tribulation after the Antichrist breaks that covenant with Israel, desecrates the temple. But the Tribulation, that seven-year period, that 70th week of Daniel, is characterized by judgment. And can I just say this right now, that climate change, climate change is a farce, okay? 
man is not going to be able to stop the natural catastrophes, the groanings of creation. And if we think that Hurricane Ian or Hurricane Nicole or Tropical Storm, whatever, if we think that's bad, we ain't seen nothing yet. I did a, in a Bible class, we did a series of, of, of math, we did some math on the number of people that are said to die during the times of judgment in the tribulation. A third of the population, half of the population, a third. And if we had 8 billion people at the time that the tribulation starts, I believe we came up with something in the neighborhood of, uh, I forget now, either three, I should have gone back and, and double-checked, but I think it was the neighborhood of either three or four billion people. About half of the Earth's population dies during the time of the tribulation. It's a lot of people. Now again, correct me if I'm wrong, I need to go back before we get to that uh, part in, in the series. I need to double-check my notes but I believe it's in the neighborhood of three or four billion people. That is incredible. We have seen some catastrophes where a lot of people have died, but I don't think we've ever seen anything in the neighborhood of three or four billion people in a seven-year time span. This is a time of judgment where God's grace and mercy is lifted in significant measure. We think we're all that. We think we're so great. We have iPhone 14s. We have Samsung Galaxy 22s. We can build bridges and skyscrapers. We can do all kinds of things. We just think man thinks he is so great and so good, and he's got all that because he has all this technology. And man will look like complete fools. Look like complete, weak, helpless people before an almighty God who pours out his judgment after his grace and mercy is lifted. And that is the worst place that any of us can be, is outside the grace and the mercy of God. I'm not trying to put a plug in for church membership, but in a case, in, and I sort of am, okay? At the same time, I don't mean to guilt trip anybody, okay? But there is something about church membership that puts us under the umbrella of, and the accountability of God's people, not me. I'm no dictator. I'm no presidente. Okay. I'm not, I'm, this isn't about me. There's something about the umbrella of protection of God's people, God's church. And when that is gone, and the grace of God is gone in great measure, and the mercy of God is lifted, we don't ever want to be there. We don't ever want to be outside the mercy of God. It is a scary place to fall under the judgment of God, to fall into the hands of an angry God. And we are so full of ourselves that we don't realize just how grievous and wicked our sin is to a holy God. God pours out his wrath, Revelation 6 through 19. We see the phrase hour of temptation in Revelation 3 and verse number 10. But then we also see the mercy and the grace of God in Noah and Lot, who were given grace and mercy and allowed to be delivered from a time of great judgment. Noah, who was a righteous man in the eyes of the Lord, Lot, who vexed his righteous soul with the sins of Sodom. 
and yet God delivered both of them out of times of great tribulation. Could they be a example of what God will do with the church in saving the church out of the tribulation? Noah and Lot seem to be examples of what God will do with the church in delivering the church out of the tribulation. Okay, we can also look at not just the judgmental nature of the tribulation, but also Daniel 9 and verse 24 specifically refers to Israel, God's people. So the church is, in a sense, a benefactor or on the side looking in and benefiting from. But Daniel 9 and verse 24 does speak to the 70 weeks of Daniel being for Israel. Now, the church is not Israel. Israel is not the church. We're not Reformed. We're not covenant theologians. We don't baptize babies. Okay? And so, don't want to get too carried away there, but we are dispensationalists, and for good reason. And Daniel 9 and verse 24 does reference Israel. And I believe there are soteriological benefits that we have as believers, but there are specific promises to Israel that will be fulfilled for Israel. And all that land that Abraham was allowed to see, Israel will get. There will be no Hezbollah, there will be no Hamas, there will be no Ayatollah Khomeini, and there will be no any other enemy of Israel in God's eternal kingdom, and Israel will have all of its land, from the Nile all the way to the Euphrates. And I forget how far north and how far south. It all belongs to Israel. Mohammed never set foot on Israel's land. Do we realize that? Mohammed only went there in a dream. And Islam makes great claim to the land of Israel, and it doesn't belong to them. And I can go on and on about the Anyway, the two-state, you know, we hear about this two-state idea. There already is Israel, and there's Arabs, and there's all those Arab nations. The Palestinians, some of them are already citizens of Israel, and they could easily be assimilated into the Arab nations. The Palestinians are being exploited for this two-state idea, which is actually, the two-state idea is actually for the elimination of Israel. So when politicians talk about a two-state solution, it's baloney. And you can buy that for $1.50 at Payless, okay? With inflation, it used to be 99 cents, but now with inflation, it's $1.50. The two-state solution isn't a solution. It basically eliminates Israel. And how do you have peace with nations that don't even believe Israel should exist? How do you have peace with nations, how do you establish treaties with people who don't believe you should even exist? Okay, enough said there. The words and phrases that are used in, in Scripture, and we're going to run out of time tonight, but look at the words and phrases that are used to describe the rapture. We are looking for the blessed hope. We're not looking for the Antichrist. We're not told, look for the Antichrist. There's a spirit of Antichrist in the world. We're warned about little a Antichrist. 1 John, 2 John especially, 3 John. 
Okay, there is a spirit of Antichrist in the world, but we're looking for the blessed hope, not for the Antichrist. Now, I know there are all these speculations about who is the Antichrist, and he very well could be alive right now. He, she, it, okay, I believe um, he, though the Bible says that he will not desire women, so don't know exactly what that refers to, um, but he, Okay, and his false prophets will deceive the world. There will be a one-world government and a one-world religion. There will be an ecumenical religion. And we can see in the technology, we can see in the different ways in which technology, we can easily see how there would be a numeric system where the mark of the beast in some sort of barcode can be implanted in the forehead or in the, the hand of all the people of the world. We can easily see that with today's technology. They're already implanting things in, in people's bodies. It'll be nothing for a barcode to be put in people's foreheads or their, 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 their wrist, their hand. Okay, But are we to be looking for all that? Is that what our focus should be on? Is who is the Antichrist? Oh, I think it's so-and-so. I think it's so-and-so. It's got to be so-and-so. Well, we don't know that. We can guess, but our hope is in the blessed hope. Our goal, our, our view, our eyes should be on the blessed hope. We're to be listening, actually, for the trumpet. We're actually be to, to do more listening than we are to be looking. And that's good for us in general, because we're very poor listeners, especially with eight-second TikTok and reels and all the other ridiculous short videos that are out there that just seem to be the craze and the obsession of 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 young people today, and even adults, um, we just don't seem to have an attention span anymore. I think, I think gnats have more attention span than some of us. We're not very good listeners. There's a reason we have two ears and one mouth. But we're to be listening for the trumpet. We're to be looking for the blessed hope. And I think there's way too much talk about the Antichrist and who he is and all the things that lead up to that. Then we also see the word receive in John 14. Jesus said that where I am, there ye may be also. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I come again, I will receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. The idea of receiving you unto myself, that speaks to the rapture. And we can talk about the illustration of the Jewish wedding. But we need to also look at 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 17 again, where we see that phrase caught up, seizing. Okay? So if there is a post-trib view of the rapture, then we go up just to come right back down. Okay? And then there are some who believe in a, a, a mid-trib I don't, I don't see that, um, but I know there are some who believe in that, and I'm not here to necessarily step on anybody's toes about that, but I believe that the language of the Bible speaks to a pre-tribulational view for, for these reasons, including the words and phrases that are used, such as blessed hope, receiving, and caught up. And then the timing, I'm sorry for the typo there, timing of the events after the rapture, and we'll have to finish with this and come back, uh, Lord willing, next week. 
but the timing of the events after the rapture. The judgment seat of Christ. The hosts of believers have to go through the judgment seat of Christ. We will receive our rewards. There will be a judgment for our works, not for our salvation. Our sin has been paid at the cross of Jesus Christ. But for those of us who are believers, 1 Corinthians 3 talks about the fiery judgment of God, wood, hay, and stubble, gold, silver, precious stones, and we will be evaluated. We will be held into account, and there will be rewards passed out for how we have lived this life, for our stewardship, for our faithfulness. And then we will take those crowns, we will take those rewards, and we will lay them at the feet of Jesus, and we will praise his holy name, because it's only by his strength and only by his power could we even do those good works. He saved us in the first place, who he hath before ordained that we should walk in them, in those good works. The judgment seat of Christ, and I don't believe there's a big screen up in heaven showing all the good and the bad things that we have done. I don't believe that is what's going on. And nobody wants to see my life anyway. It'd be extremely boring. I would not make any kind of Oscar or Emmy because my life is really boring. But that's not what's going on. It's not, well, we got, you know, movie today, film day for so-and-so today. No, there is an accounting in God's accounting book for our faithfulness and our stewardship. And there will be judged according to our works. And there will be rewards we will lay at the feet of Jesus, and that even speaks to the measure in which our praise will be toward, toward Christ. The marriage supper. This is another reason we believe in a pre-tribulational view of the rapture. Revelation 19, 1 through 10, there is, and I, I mean this with all respect and reverence, there is a party all right, in heaven, there is a marriage supper that will be the greatest Morgensburg buffet that we can possibly ever imagine. I don't like Golden Corral, no offense, but Golden Corral has nothing on the marriage supper of the Lamb. Our Thanksgiving meal that some of us might enjoy in a couple of weeks will be nothing compared to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we will be absolutely 100% righteous, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, wearing those white garments. And we'll be fellowshipping together without any sin being in the way. Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing? Right now, we struggle with relationships all the time because there's sin. We're constantly dealing with relationships, constantly having to forgive and be forgiven and fix things and let things go and give it to the Lord. And we have to do inspection of ourselves. Think about all that's going to be gone. We're going to have perfect relate. You know what? Even some of the people we can't stand to be in the same room with right now, God's going to make sure that we're sitting next to each other in heaven. I can't say that dogmatically, but I, I believe that there will be people that we won't sit within five pews of in our churches. Shame on us. And I hope God puts us right next to each other and we have to eat celestial food together. And I hope that we will have that one day. And it will be glory to eat that meal in the presence of our Father, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's a lot of saved people, and it's going to take a long time. And I don't think three and a half years is enough. And I don't think we go up and have a judgment seat and a marriage supper of the Lamb and come right back down. I believe the pre-tribulational view best explains the timing of these events. 
And so we'll have to stop there. I'm a little over time. I apologize. But I hope this has been a help to us. We'll come back, Lord willing, next week and finish up on the second part of open prophecy in regards to the rapture of the church. Let's bow for prayer, and then we'll sing our closing hymn. Lord, we thank you for the promise of your coming. The Lord, you have gone to prepare a place for us. And Lord, to think that there is a room, there is a mansion that you are preparing for us. Lord, that is, that is just un, 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 unbelievable. It's just so incredible to think that you would even prepare a place in heaven for us. So undeserving sinners, Lord, who deserve an eternal hell. But you loved us so much, you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die for us, to take our, the penalty for our sins so that we can have the righteousness of Christ credited to our account. We can be clothed in your righteousness. Dwell the house of the Lord forever. Lord, we take such hope and confidence with us as we go out into a working world, into the dregs of our culture sometimes. We have such a hope in Jesus Christ. We look forward, Lord, to that day when you return and call us unto yourself. Lord, it may be by death or maybe through the rapture, and we say, Lord, even so, come quickly. But Lord, whether it be many years from now or whether it be tonight, Lord, may we be ready for your coming. Lord, may we be prepared and be found faithful. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We will close our service tonight with one.